Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you so much for being here today. They diagnosed me with stage four endometriosis, and that was a really tough moment, really happy that I'd been finally believed after 15 years, but also really, really sad thinking, how is this going to affect my fertility? I had a lot of self-blame. I should have done something differently. I should have spoken to like 12 doctors instead of five or seven doctors. I sat with a lot of guilt because I was thinking, I can't give my husband a child. And I think that really hurts because you're already going through physical pain. You're already going through pain where you've been dismissed for such a long time where you haven't been believed. And then you're also going through a pain where you don't know if you're ever going to be able to conceive or have a child. It was a lot to deal with. Sometimes when I look back, I think to myself, how did I manage all of these? It really was horrible. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. Today, I'm speaking about forever chemicals. Have you heard of these? PFAS chemicals or perfluorinated alkyl substances? In 1946, Teflon was released, and it started decades of pollution of our environment and our bodies. Teflon is part of a family of chemicals called PFAS. Now, there are thousands of these chemicals in the family, and they're used to make things water, grease, and stain resistant. Would you like to put stain resistance on your rug? Would you like to put stain resistance on your couch? All of those chemicals are in the family of the PFAS. So it makes it so easy for us to scramble eggs and the eggs just fall off the pan, right? But unfortunately, these chemicals can stay in our bodies for decades. And a 2015 study showed that women with higher levels of PFAS in their blood had a decreased production of estrogen and progesterone. Studies have also linked PFAS chemicals to cancers, reduced immunity, disruption of our hormones, obesity, abnormal thyroid hormones, pregnancy-induced hypertension, a condition called preeclampsia, and low birth weight in infants. Most recently, PFAS have been found in sparkling waters, not going to name any names here, but there's many sparkling waters that were found to have high levels of PFAS chemicals. And so we really have to be careful because we can get in contact with PFAS in a lot of different products. So here's my top list of how you can avoid PFAS chemicals. Number one, check your water and see if you have PFAS contamination. You can go to ewg.org. There are also companies like TapScore that can help 
could do testing of your water. And number two, stop using nonstick or Teflon coated pants. This is something that I stopped about a decade ago now. And it's really hard to get used to trying to cook things and stainless steel and cast iron in the beginning. But now that I do it, I don't even know why I need Teflon in the first place. The thing is, stainless steel and cast iron pans, those things can last forever if you take care of them well. A Teflon pan, once you see the coating starting to be scratched, anyone who's owned a Teflon pan knows this, you have to get a new one. Also, as I mentioned before, don't opt for the stain guard when it comes to furniture, carpets, or clothing. Avoid microwave popcorn. This is another way that we can find PFAS chemicals. And eat more meals at home. A study in 2015 found that 40% of the fast foods tested contained PFAS chemicals. And also there are certain clothing items that can have PFAS chemicals. If you see something with a Gore-Tex label, try to avoid that. Sticking to this list will help to decrease your exposure to PFAS chemicals and it can be greatly beneficial to your health. Thanks for joining me today. Now let's get into today's episode. Welcome, Aisha. Thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Can't wait to share my story with everyone. Yeah, I found you on Instagram where you're very vocal about your past fertility journey and living with endometriosis. And so I wanted to see if you could share a little bit with us about your fertility journey and living with endometriosis. Yeah, so my journey started when I was 50, and that's when I had really excruciating period pains. And I actually had a really supportive mom where, as soon as I said I was feeling quite ill, she took me to the doctors. And for the next, I don't know, 10 years, I was just going back and forth, seeing different consultants, and they kept saying nothing was wrong with me. And then I got married. I decided to try for a baby, and then I just couldn't fall pregnant. And it was only when I couldn't fall pregnant, doctors actually started to take my pain and my symptoms seriously. And I asked to be referred to a hospital that specialised in endometriosis and fertility because one of my cousins had endometriosis and said, actually, Aisha, I think you've got endo. I had a diagnostic laparoscopy and then they diagnosed me with stage four endometriosis. And that was a really tough moment, really, really happy that I'd been finally believed after 15 years, but also really, really sad thinking, how is this going to affect my fertility in my future? I can't tell you how many women I see who've been ignored with pelvic pain, which to me seems very obvious, endometriosis until proven otherwise. And I don't know where this idea comes that pelvic pain is normal and we should ignore women. It's just terrible. Because perhaps, and I don't know if you had, you know, like you said, there was some relief that finally you had the answer and it kind of allowed you to be like, see, I have been telling you this is real. I'm not making it up. But I'm sure that there was some anger there, too, that so many years went on and you didn't have that answer or maybe get help earlier. Yeah, honestly, I was furious. 
And in my 20s, I think I had a lot of pent-up anger because I just wasn't believed by anyone. And at one point during my journey, I went to see a consultant and she actually referred me to a psychologist because she said, and it's actually comical and it makes me laugh now, but she actually said the pain Mm -hmm. was all in my head. And actually, when I went to see the psychologist, she was really minimizing my experience and my pain that I'd been describing to the Mm. GP. And I think in that moment, I started to believe that it really was all me and it was all made up. Um, And that's why sometimes when I hear people say, look, we need to advocate for ourselves and we need to keep pushing. Mm -hmm. But I I did advocate for myself and I did keep pushing and I had a very supportive family network. But if you're surrounded by doctors and GPs that are unaware of a condition or they're minimizing your pain, what more could I literally have done? Right. And you had been seen since you were a teenager. So it's not as if you came to this idea later in life. This is something that you've been speaking about for years and years and multiple doctors had ignored you. Yeah. That's just, it's terrible that the idea that it's all in your head. I'm sorry that you you went through that. Well, thank you. It did sting for quite a long time. And I think during my, even my infertility journey, which I'll come on to later, I had a lot of self-blame. And I think because I kept thinking to myself, I should have done something differently. I should have spoken to like 12 doctors instead of five or seven doctors. And you think all these things and then you feel guilty because I sat with a lot of guilt because I was thinking I can't give my husband a child. And I think that really hurts because you're already going through physical pain. You're already going through pain where you've been dismissed for such a long time where you haven't been believed. You're also going through a pain where you don't know if you're ever going to be able to conceive or have a child. And it's actually a lot to deal with. It was a lot to deal with. Sometimes when I look back, I think to myself, how did I manage all of these emotions? It really was horrible. When I was in my teens, I think for around 15 to 14 days a month, I was in bed. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And just the bleeding, it was just so heavy. And then when they kind of did the laparoscopy, and they looked inside. My actual ovaries were adhered to my uterus. And my bowel was also wow. attached to my uterus. And yeah, so they call it kissing ovaries. And I had lots of endometriomas. Mm-hmm. And for anyone listening, that's like chocolate. Yeah. Like blood fills this around my ovaries. And even the consultant said to me, how are you living in this pain after he did surgery? He said, mm-hmm. just unbelievable that it had taken for you not to be able to fall pregnant to be actually heard and get a diagnosis, basically. Yeah, there's something in that it's not important until you're looking to be pregnant. Why are we ignoring women until they're really interested in being pregnant? Because, you know, there's a huge part of your life that's being affected. You're saying you're staying in bed two weeks out of the month. You can't get out of bed. Your pain is so severe and still you didn't have answers. That's just, it's awful. And I I hope that this is, I want to say it's changing, but at the same time, unfortunately, I see a lot of women that are still being ignored. Sometimes I wonder why that is. What's really the root of the problem? Because even now I'm actually, you know, we have the NHS in the UK and I've been on the waiting list for two years to have a laparoscopy. And in between that time, I've had to complain to the trust because they keep cancelling my appointments or 
something hasn't been sorted out or they haven't contacted me about my MRI results or other results. So it's just so shoddy the way that I feel like I'm treated. And it's almost like, unless I, I pay for things privately, I don't get the care I deserve. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it shouldn't have to be like that. I shouldn't have to keep paying for things privately when yeah. we have an NHS. I think one of the big issues with endometriosis is the fact that I can't just draw your blood and say yes or no, right? So it's like you have to have a patient go through surgery, like you said, you had a laparoscopy to identify that. But in someone like your case where the, you know, the pain is so severe and the symptoms are so severe, I think that justifies the procedure. At some point, you have to be like, let's have, I mean, I I suppose at a younger age, Physicians may not be wanting to take a teenager to surgery. Mm -hmm. I understand that it may not be because they're not sure. And I get that. And I know women with endometriosis sometimes are waiting 12 years to get diagnosis, sometimes going through, like you said, seven to 10 doctors Mm -hmm. to get that diagnosis. Um, Yeah, it's unfortunate. I know that there is some newer testing that we use in the fertility world to help us to diagnose endometriosis by way of endometrial biopsy. But it's still not something that's available to everyone. No, exactly. And I think, and like you said, while things have progressed and there's a lot more awareness in this country about endometriosis, which I think is amazing. But I think that they need to speed up diagnosis times because in the meantime, people are still struggling. Yeah. Did they try to put you on things like birth control pills to help your pain or give you anything for pain? So, yeah, in my 20s, I actually suggested to the GP because they were literally leaving me with nothing apart from really mild painkillers. And anyone who has severe endometriosis or endometriosis will stop or know that mild painkillers when you're in pain literally does nothing. It's like taking a sweet. So I actually asked them if I could be on birth control. And actually for a while, it dimmed down the symptoms. It didn't stop the pain by any means. The Mm -hmm. bleeding was still really heavy, but it kind of dimmed down. It took the edge off a little bit of the pain. And so I thought, yep, let me just carry on. See what happens. Yeah, I I know it can help. And like you said, any little bit can help. But it's unfortunate that we really have minimal tools. When you had the surgery, did that help your pain in any way? Because it doesn't always. Thing is, I had a really good surgeon and he actually worked in the private sector, a really, really good hospital. So I knew that he had really good credentials and I'd actually read up about him. And actually when he did the surgery, the way I felt the next day was like night and day. He was such a good surgeon. And actually one of the nurses, when she came to see me after, she said to me that the way my ovaries were attached and just the way that they were, um, just like, I don't know how they were inside my body. She said that he did a really good job of separating them. And actually, she said he actually saved my ovaries. Mm. So I'm really thankful to him for being able to do that. So yeah, that was a bit of a game changer at the time because previously I was waking up every day with a lot of fatigue and the fatigue Mm -hmm. was, it was awful. Some days I'd sleep for 14 hours and I would wake up Mm. and felt like I'd been sleeping for two minutes. And as, soon as, wow. and as soon as he did the surgery, I literally woke up and that fatigue, I, it was so nice to not be able to feel that level of tiredness. And as soon as I woke mm-hmm. up from surgery, even with them being under anesthetic, I felt different. Can you believe that? 
Wow. Because I know that not everybody gets relief from surgery with endometriosis. For some people, it's just getting the diagnosis. But, you know, I'm glad that you at least had some relief. Then once you had the surgery and we had the diagnosis, how did that play into your fertility journey? Okay. So the next 10 years looked like many fell rounds of IVF. When I actually spoke to the consultant after, they said that they believed my greatest chance of pregnancy success would be to go down the IVF route. They said that they doubted that I could ever get pregnant naturally with how severe the endometriosis was, and especially because it was around my ovaries. So I started IVF immediately. I had some Zolodex injections, which were to give me a temporary menopause, and I was on them for around six months. And then I had two cycles in the NHS, and then all the rest I did privately. And I was pregnant three times, but unfortunately I miscarried. And then in 2019, that was my last pregnancy. When that failed, I decided that's it. Going to put the lid on, trying for a baby infertility and try and embrace my child free after infertility life. I'm sure for you, that was a hard journey. You told us in a few minutes, kind of the overview of what you went through, but you know, it sort of minimizes how I'm sure incredible the struggle was for you and the pain. And I'm sure you went through a tremendous amount of grief to come to the decision that you were going to live child free. Now you are very vocal about your experience and you are doing well, but I'm sure that transition was quite difficult. It was so painful. I think it was as painful in a way, when I miscarried or when I just couldn't fall pregnant naturally, it was so painful coming to a realization that actually you're never going to be a mother. You're never, ever going to have a child with your husband. You know, your parents are never going to have grandchildren. You are never going to have grandchildren. And actually coming to terms with that is incredibly hard. When I set my mind on it, when I was... In my 20s, I wanted children with my husband. It was something that, yeah, just, I just really wanted with him. And it was really painful when I had to accept that was no longer how my life was going to look. Yeah, I mean, it's you grieving a loss, right? Yes. Besides the fact that, unfortunately, you also went through pregnancy losses. Yeah. So grieving the pregnancy losses you went through, grieving the loss of trying to get pregnant on your own without fertility treatment, grieving the diagnosis of endometriosis, mm -hmm. grieving the now acceptance of, like you said, I'm not going to have children, I'm not going to have grandchildren. How did you get through all of that grief and trauma? I think when I was first going through my infertility journey, I didn't. Because back then, and I always say this, there were no fertility Instagram posts or people, and it was a really lonely time especially like in South Asian, Middle Eastern communities, we don't talk about this stuff. And even though I've always been a very open, vocal person, because of the area it's in as well, you just don't go around talking about it. And at the time when I was trying for a baby, there were people who were also trying for children. And when I was pregnant a few times, they weren't pregnant and they were still trying. But it's actually after I had my twins, my second pregnancy, most of the people I knew who were trying to get pregnant got pregnant so it felt like in that moment I was the only one in my community who literally didn't have a baby right or couldn't have a baby that went to full terms 
-hmm. and processing that grief was, I don't know how I did it, if I'm being really honest. I did have a supportive family and I had a supportive husband, but still, sometimes you need more than that. And it was towards the end of my journey that I decided to have therapy and oh my goodness, therapy was a game changer. I don't know how I navigated the journey so long without it. Mm-hmm. And my therapist, she was just so amazing. Like I'd always be so grateful to what she did. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just amazing. I just, I can't even explain it. And actually it's getting me emotional thinking about it because she, the way she would just sit with me in that moment without judgment or without expectation. And I think that's really important mm-hmm. when you're going through this journey because there is a lot of grief. Like you said, there, there are all these layers, the diagnosis that trying naturally and then trying with IVF and then dealing with your community, dealing with your husband, dealing with everyone else's yeah. emotions. And yeah, she was just amazing. So I've always been advocates for therapy. So yeah, anyone listening, it's a game changer. Do it. I think what it was, after I had my first miscarriage, it was very painful physically. I was like seven weeks continuously cramping and bleeding. It was so physically painful. I can't even describe the pain. It was just awful. And then I didn't have any therapy after that. And when I lost mm-hmm. my twins, I knew I needed therapy. So my mother-in-law actually came with me to my GP. And again, I said, look, I need some sort of help. And they were, again, very dismissive. Oh my As if to say, well, actually, loads of people experience losses. And that's how, mm. you know, that doctor made me feel. And then anyway, so my husband was like, go and see a different doctor. So I saw a different doctor and he was really good. And he was like, I'm so sorry for your losses. Mm-hmm. And he put me through to a really good um, therapist. But on the NHS, I only got six weeks and it helped a lot, but it wasn't enough. And I also think during that time, infertility grief wasn't, kind of it, it didn't Recognized. have the yeah it didn't have the um struggle that it deserved so yeah no one really spoke about infertility grief it was something that you just got on with because you know if you couldn't have a baby it was like oh well so I think yeah towards the end of my journey infertility grief was spoken about a lot more yeah I think in general we don't really look at supporting mental health or mental well-being until someone now is clinically depressed or clinically has anxiety disorder when we really should be looking after mental well-being along the way to help prevent that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a problem because, like I was saying, back then it wasn't really spoken about that much. I don't think doctors really knew a lot about infertility grief. And when I did try to bring it up again, I was dismissed. And towards the end of my journey, it's something I decided to look into privately. But again, I had to pay for it. So yeah. That really helped massively, I think, in terms of dealing with grief and trauma. But actually, sometimes we see these posts about people saying never give up. I was a never give up Mm -hmm. person. (laughs) Back then, that was a narrative. It was like, no, you keep trying until it happens. So when I did see both of my therapists, they actually entertained the thought of what if it doesn't happen? And I couldn't accept it. Every time they would bring that up, I would say, listen, it's going to happen. I'm not going to be an IVF fail. It's going to mm-hmm. happen. And I think had there been more childless, not by choice, community or individuals, right. I would definitely not have navigated so many rounds of IVF. Because I had, I say I had 11 plus, and that's because at right. 11, I stopped counting. I had a lot more than 11. But oh my goodness. when I look back at that, it's actually quite, a, for me personally, it's quite a toxic way to think because 
I was literally mm-hmm. willing to put everything, my mental health, my physical health, um, my emotions, I was willing to put that on the back burner to have a baby. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think had I had another perspective to show me that actually it's okay to stop. If it's affecting you right. this badly, you, you don't have to carry on. There are other options. You have other choices. And I think being on years and years of IVF meds, like back-to-back medication, and also having the Zonodex in between to treat my endometriosis, having a few procedures, I literally didn't give my body a break. Right. And then towards the end of my journey, I didn't realize, because I was so focused on trying to have a baby, that I was actually rectally bleeding. And it's sounding oh, wow. when my private consultant said to me, oh my goodness, I think you might have rectovaginal endometriosis. And I was like, what's that? Mm. Um, right. So I think that the medicine that I was taking for years and years contributed to making my endometriosis a lot worse. And now it's mm-hmm. in the rectum and the vagina, as well as my bowel and my ovaries. Wow. And now this is something that you are having to still deal with, the endometriosis. Yeah. Still a daily struggle. Today I'm on my period and and that's the thing. Mm -hmm. Many of us, I look fine, but today it's been a difficult time in the morning because I've got a bit of head fog. Um, Right. Yeah, I've got like pain in my abdomen, my lower back hurts. So it's an invisible illness, but sometimes many of us feel very visibly ignored. Yeah. You mentioned not having anyone out there with a story like yours. So, you know, I know you're vocal now on Instagram, and, and though there wasn't a social media, like you said, during the time when you were going through this, and perhaps maybe if you'd seen more stories similar to yours at the time, then maybe you would have decided to stop your journey earlier. Do you feel that's possible? Absolutely. I think when you're in a situation and there's only a very one-dimensional view of something, you think to yourself this is the path this is what I have to do and now looking at some of the things that people post it's actually really supportive of stopping the journey if it's right for you or at the right time Mm -hmm. my husband told me to stop doing IVF about three years before I stopped he was saying to me look look at how it's affecting you it's affecting you mentally emotionally but I was in this big bubble of no I need to become a mother I need to have a baby I need to be pregnant and even my mother-in-law, like she told me to stop. She said to me, you're more important than having a baby. And at that point, I was really annoyed with her. I was thinking, why are you telling me to stop? But actually on reflection, it's such a healthy thing to say. Like I actually thank her for that thinking, you know, that support is what so many women need to say, actually, right. you're more important. And mm-hmm. looking back, yeah, I, you're damn right. I am important. And my health yeah. is more important. Yes, I would have loved to become a mother. Yes, I'd have liked to have had the baby. But I tried and it just didn't happen. And now the reason why I'm quite vocal on Instagram is I want to show people that you can live a happy life outside motherhood. Okay, yeah, it isn't like what you expected. And it does take a lot of work and there is a lot of healing and you have to process your grief. There's, there's just no getting around that. But my life is not an empty life. It's actually a very happy life. And I think, unfortunately, there is this narrative that your worth is tied into being a mother. And so it shouldn't be like that, right? You were a person who had worth before you got married and once you got married. And so it's amazing that you had a supportive husband and supportive mother-in-law and supportive family, because I'm sure that helped, especially when you were down on yourself and didn't feel like maybe you were worthy. 
Yeah, I think so. And anyone listening to this, no one has a perfect family. So I don't want people to think there were times where I had grief. There are times where I could have talked to people just because of the way I was feeling. I think this is just natural in any, you know, infertility journey. But what I didn't have was that pressure to give my husband a child. Actually, it's quite the opposite, where in fact, that's probably what made me carry on a lot longer because I felt that I really wanted to because I had that support. I know that might sound really strange, mm -hmm. but actually it was the opposite. And I think a lot of the time in our culture, like South Asian or Middle Eastern, there is this pressure mm -hmm. around family building and it really has yeah. to stop. And a lot of the time, the blame lies under the feet of women, where we yes. know that male factor infertility can represent up to 40% of you know, infertility cases. Um, mm -hmm. And like you said, before I got married, I never ever thought to myself, if I don't get married, I won't be worth it or worthy or who will I be if I don't get married? I never thought like that. So actually when I came to the right. end of my journey, I thought to myself, but if I didn't feel like that about marriage, why am I feeling like that about becoming a mother? It's just right. a different way of leading your life, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe your family was supportive, but outside of your family, perhaps friends or coworkers or anything at events? Did you hear a lot of unsolicited advice and comments? And how did you handle that? That's one of the main reasons why I kept my journey quiet. I couldn't take the unsolicited advice. I think apart from dealing with infertility, it's the thing I struggled with the most because I didn't get it from my family. So I didn't have that pressure. And then when mm -hmm. I'd go to events such as weddings, I would get, when's a baby coming? Or are you pregnant? Or even worse, once I had someone say to me, wasn't the last time I saw you, you were pregnant. Hmm. So it's just all these really intrusive kind of comments. And sometimes with coworkers, people who just didn't even know me would say to me, oh, you don't have children, but you've been married such a long time. Why don't you just adopt? Yeah. The whole adopt comment. It's almost like we can mm -hmm. just go out and grab a child from a store and be like, yep, adopting you. Adoption is right. another huge process. And I think people trivialize how difficult it also is to adopt. How did you maintain boundaries around that? I think during my really difficult years of infertility, I just avoided going places. It was horrible. I isolated a lot because I felt like I was the only one within my community who hadn't had a baby after so many years of marriage. So I actually avoided everything because every single thing was a trigger for me. Honestly, this when it came to like the TV yeah. or being around people or going to weddings. And I feel like my 30s, I lost out a lot during that mm -hmm. time. And I think people think infertility is just about not having a baby. It isn't. When I look back on my right. 30s, I hated my 30s. I can't remember anything good about my 30s. And that might sound dramatic to people, but I don't really care. Because during mm -hmm. them times, anything good was overshadowed by loss or IVF or hormones or endometriosis or pain. And that's why I'm 41 now. And that's why at 40, I decided if I didn't have a baby by 40, there's other things I'm going to do in my life. I've given it a good go. 10 years is actually more than a good go. Right. I, I don't want to be sitting there like, in my 40s, being triggered by other people's pregnancy announcements or not being mm -hmm. able to go places because I can't see children. And I was sick of waking up in that sadness. And that's mm -hmm. when I thought, no, this is where it changes. This is why I'm going to deal with my grief and trauma. And actually, coaching really helped me to see perspective. What does Aisha want her life to look like or be like in five years' time? 
And I think therapy mm-hmm. and coaching was amazing for me. How long did it take you to work through that? It's something that you have to work with a therapist for a while. And you also had a coach. Yeah. Is that it surrounding your fertility journey as well? You worked with an IVF coach or? No, so the therapist was to do with fertility, grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And I started that, I think, I can't remember exactly, 2017. And I had her for quite mm-hmm. a while. So my final pregnancy was in 2019. So I think I actually stopped seeing my therapist before that pregnancy. I was ready mm-hmm. to kind of navigate my own journey after that because yeah, it's funny actually because that pregnancy was the one where I, I dealt with it the best, that pregnancy loss. Mm-hmm. I wasn't in the depths of grief like I was with the others because I think therapy really helped me to kind of navigate my emotions and what if it didn't work and how will you feel and how will you try and process that and how will you think about these things. And before in my other pregnancies, I never had that. I always thought, no, they're going to work, they're going to work, they're going to work. So I think good therapy Mm -hmm. or coaching is about dealing with trying to be okay regardless of what happens. And coaching was actually um, professional coaching. So actually it kind of focused on how I want my life to be, yeah, without a child and what that would look like. So both of them were like really powerful for me. So kind of helping you to realize that there was something for you outside of having a child, focusing also on your professional life and showing you that there was worth in that. I know you do IVF coaching now. Is that something that inspired you to go in that way or how did you come to that decision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, therapy was really good because it helped me to look at my past and how that affected my future. But coaching was different because it allowed me to understand that, you know, I have choices. And there's such power in being able to think, you know what, I actually do have choices. So yeah, I think coaching really inspired me to be able to support other women. So I'm a certified coach. I don't claim to cure, fit, or tell people to manifest their pregnancy. That's not the work that I do. But I literally have work, you know, with people to kind of work through realistic goals. So yeah, that's basically what I do. And I just love the work I do. I think the people I meet are just incredible. Sometimes they just don't give themselves enough credit, like many of us going through this process. It, actually, that was a really important part of my healing coaching. Women going through infertility struggle or child is not by choice or having chronic illness. And that really made a big difference to my healing. And I think also like writing blogs for people, articles, and we now wrote a chapter for a book. That was all a huge mm-hmm. part of my healing. Yeah, you have a chapter in the book, We Are One in Eight. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, that was really amazing. Lauren, she's a project coordinator. She had um, twins by a sperm donor, I believe. And you know, the infertility narrative, sometimes it can focus on having a baby. And sometimes mm-hmm. voices like mine are left out. Sometimes voices like hers are left out, down the conception. Right. And she just wanted to right. look at all different stories and put this book together. And it really is. So I think literally whatever you go through, whether you're a single person wanting to have a child or you've got PCOS and you want to have a child, there's something in there that every single person can relate to. And yeah, because I'm quite funny about who I work with. So when I actually saw what the project was about, I thought, yep, this just sounds so ideal. It's just so nice thinking that my chapter might be able to support someone else going through their journey and for them to see that actually you can come out the other end and be happy. I think the book is wonderful. Like you said, it has so many great stories. And if you're going through infertility, 
journey. It's something that you really can find something where you're going to connect. And everybody's story is different. And I think that's why it's great to be able to highlight the different stories and notice that everybody has a different journey. How did you reconnect with yourself after infertility? You said your 30s, you didn't have any happy thoughts. You've, you kind of have a, a bad feeling about that time. So I imagine it's almost like you lost a piece of yourself. How did you find yourself again? I just think really taking my time, taking my time to process every single thing that I've been through and just not having expectations of myself and how I would wake up every day. Because I think sometimes when you finish the process or you leave the process childless, there's almost like an expectation that you have to have a plan B or a plan A. And mm -hmm. I just thought, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to put pressure on myself. My life's going to look how it looks. Creating boundaries because I was still processing my trauma. So although for a lot of other people, my journey might have been over, it wasn't over for me. It was over in terms of trying to make a baby, but for all the other things, it wasn't over. So I was very clear with my boundaries, even amongst my immediate family. I think even like being vocal, just talking about it. So even when I went out to dinner with friends, while they might talk about their children, I was talking about my infertility torment brief. Like I would talk about it every mm -hmm. because I thought I've just sat here so long being quiet about it and putting on this face and you know, having makeup on and looking okay. I'm just not happy to do that. They were all the way like, this is going to really help me. And that already helped just really being me and not putting on a facade or pretending that I feel happy. The days that I was really sad, right. I would express that to people who were close to me. They were really good about it. You now are sharing on social media. Do you ever feel like it's hard to be included in the infertility community? Because often stories like yours, you said, are not shared. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's one of the main reasons I decided to do the work I do. Not all my clients are people who are childless, not by choice. Some of them are actually still navigating their fertility or they're on a different journey. And that's one of the main reasons I started my page because I didn't see a lot of childless, not by choice Instagrammers. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how am I going to try and change that? And I feel like had I been a mother, I actually wouldn't be doing the work I'm doing today. Honestly, I think I would have just been so engrossed in that bubble. I just wouldn't be doing everything I'm doing now. Right. And part of me really appreciates the work that I do and Maybe that's my legacy. My legacy wasn't to have a child, but maybe this is my legacy to support other people going through a very similar journey. But I also find that there are many visibly Muslim women out there talking about their experience mm -hmm. and we understand why there's a lot of shame, stigma, embarrassment attached to fertility. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, these accounts, they remain anonymous. And I just, yes. for a while, I did remain anonymous because I thought, mm -hmm. do I want to show my face? And then I just thought, of course I do. Why wouldn't I? And my story is powerful. I have a lot to mm -hmm. share. And I'm so glad I did because I've connected with so many people. Where had I not have shown my face, my story or my narrative would not be out there. So right. patting myself with the back. Yeah, in. it's amazing that you've done it. I know that it's not easy, but you're really helping because I think, yes, we know that there's not many women from the Muslim community or from the Middle Eastern or Southeast Asian communities out there. But people want to know that there are women from their community also dealing with infertility. And the only way that we'll see that is when women like yourself are able to share their story and realize that you know, infertility doesn't discriminate. It's time to hear other stories that are not sort of the traditional 
what we're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. And there's worth in things of, like you said, outside of being a mother. And and I'm sure right now, like you said, this is you finding your purpose Mm -hmm. in life is being able to share your story with others. And I think it's amazing that you're doing that. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's nice to be able to share my story. Like I said, it, it was for quite a while a huge part of my healing. Now, not so much. I don't really identify outside the work I do. I don't identify like Aisha, the childless woman. I'm just Aisha. Because for a long right. time, I did identify with my fertility or my chronic illness. And now mm-hmm. I'm not in the depths of grief that I used to be in, say, four years ago. So, yeah, only with the work I do, I talk about it a lot. But outside that, I'm just your regular person. Just going about their daily life or their business. Um, And yeah, it'd be nice to see other people who are similar to me be able to also get to that stage. Yeah, that that would be good. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give yourself when you were on your journey? Oh my goodness. I'd give myself two pieces of advice. One is that whole never give up crap. Seriously, that needs to go away. And the second one would be you can have a happy life without children. If it doesn't turn out, that's going to be the road that you go down. So they're the two things that I would have given myself. Yeah, I think that's all. And I think that those are amazing tips that now you are sharing on social media. I'm sure you share that with the people that you work with in your coaching. So that's something that's helping those women that are on their journey. You mentioned that your husband was very supportive of you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you supported each other during the journey? Because fertility journey can have a huge impact on relationships, and that's often something that's very ignored as well. Absolutely. And I think anyone navigating their infertility journey will appreciate if they're in a relationship how it really does affect not only just you and your partner, your relationship with your parents, your sibling, your friends. I, I really wish people who weren't infertile knew the impact of infertility. It's not just a, a very small area effect. It affects everything, your finances, your ability to go out, face people. The layers are huge. And I think at one point when we lost our twins, we were both grieving in very different ways. And I think at that point, both of us were so sad, we couldn't even talk to each other. And that was really painful because... Men navigate grief in a very different way to women, I believe, um, especially mm-hmm. men from our cultures. They are, yes. they don't talk about their grief very openly. And that's because they're also taught that actually that's not what men do. Right. Um, so he approached his grief very differently to mine. I speak very openly about lots of things. And I think that was very hard for us. But then afterwards, mm-hmm. when grief kind of not subsided, that's not the right word lessened that's when we can mm-hmm. start talking about it but again we can speak about it a lot with each other without crying 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 but that again is normal and I think anyone listening if that's you and you're unable to speak to your partner he's unable to speak to you because you're crying about something that's painful that's okay and then I think again sorry to sound like a stuck record but therapy again really helped me mm-hmm. and actually it's something my therapist said she said look you know, we can't always rely on our partners to help us out of this situation. Sometimes we need to rely on ourselves to get us out of something. And sometimes yes. we can put a lot of pressure on our partners or family members to support us in a way where they're not even qualified. 
or they're dealing with right. something themselves. And I think that was really important to hear. And also that men do process grief very differently to us. I'm very vocal about how I feel about things. I still think there's work I need to do with therapy around when I had my twins, when I gave birth to them. I think there's still elements mm-hmm. of that that trigger me. But um, generally, like yeah. I have no issue with pregnancy announcements or I don't feel triggered going to a place with children. That I just don't feel triggered about at all. But I think my actual losses to do with that little part, I think there's still work to be done there for me. And I think mm-hmm. for me, definitely, because I've worked through my grief and trauma, it's, it's very few and far between, if I'm being really honest. Things like my twins' due date or when I was pregnant, they're, they're kind of things that I remember. But I don't feel that kind of deep sadness I used to. I kind of embrace what I'm feeling in that moment and then kind of carry on with my day. I don't try and prevent the feelings that I have coming up. I think it's mm-hmm. healthy to be able to feel sadness about something that's sad. And um, it was sad. Yeah. I lost four babies. I'm always going to be sad about that. Um, yeah. But what I don't do is I don't sit in it. So I feel what I feel and I understand, okay, you know what? That was a part of my life that was sad, but that's okay. So mm-hmm. I just think it's about how you process these feelings. And yeah, that's what I try to do, basically. I think that's really important. Therapy is something that's so undervalued. And it's something that you can go to with your partner because, as you mentioned, men grieve differently. And sometimes that feels hurtful to us, yeah, right? it does. Like, why is he grieving like that? Is he sad? Is he really hurt? Or why doesn't he want to share? Or why doesn't he want to talk to me about it? But they have a different perspective, and it doesn't mean that they're not hurt. Oh, my goodness, absolutely. And it's funny you say that, because when I wrote the chapter for the book, um, Laura Nords, if any of our partners, if we had one, would like to contribute. And I asked him, and he said, yeah, I would. And actually, he wrote a paragraph. So I wrote a whole chapter, mm-hmm. he wrote a paragraph. And it's actually mm-hmm. funny, the comparison, because when he was trying to write that paragraph, he was crying for about an hour after, because... He doesn't mm-hmm. talk about things that much. And when he does, he's very emotional about it. When now I can talk about practically everything. Yeah, of course, sometimes you feel emotional because it's sad. But how he processed that moment would, was very different to how I processed it. But there, there's no wrong or right. It's just a matter of how you deal with things. Yeah. That is something that I know I get a lot of women who feel like that sort of upset that he's not that sad about the loss when in fact they often are just as sad but it's just how they show it because they've been told as men that it's not okay really to share or it's not okay to quote-unquote be sad or to cry or things like that and so they have a different way of processing it so now you're journey as a fertility coach that was something that was i imagine healing for you. Tell us a little bit about how that helped you and a little bit about your role as a fertility coach, what you do with clients. Okay, so I am a certified coach. So I studied in transformational coaching. And one of the reasons why I wanted to do that was to empower other women and men. But to be fair, I haven't had any male clients. So yeah, just to empower others. I understand that even my experience even if it's very similar to someone else's, it will be different because their background, their ethnicity, their gender, what they identify with will all impact on the situation in a very different way. And it's just been a dream being with some of these clients and seeing their transformation and actually them coming out knowing that they have choices 
And that's my job to create awareness about the situation. So the coaching, I don't give advice. It's working through asking my clients open questions so they get to their result or their goal themselves. And I think that mm-hmm. there's power from that, actually making your own decisions. So that's why I chose the route of coaching. And yeah, it's just been such a dream. See the transformation and looking back, sometimes I wish I could have had that because maybe my perspective about yeah. things or getting to where I am now would have come sooner. But yeah, and it wasn't yeah, meant d- to be. Just having someone, I think, to be able to be that support for you, I think can be so helpful. And that's something I'm seeing more now, women who are doing IVF coaching. And I think that's something that can be helpful for anyone who's listening. Tell us a little bit where listeners can find you and how they can work with you if they'd like to work with you. My website is www.mindbodyrevivalcoach.com. And I'm on Instagram as bodyrevival underscore coach. And I'm on Twitter at mindbodyrevival. And you can contact me through either DMing me or going to my website. I have like a contact page. And um, just see if one-to-one coaching is right for you. I offer a 30-minute free consult because sometimes coaching isn't right for everyone. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I have people come to me, there's more therapy they need. And I explain to them that I'm not a therapist, that I'm a coach. And a lot of what I do is about looking forward, understanding you have choices. And yeah, that's where you can find me. Yeah, thank you. Mental health, uh, we've been talking a lot about, it is so important. And I think often on the fertility journey, we don't allow ourselves to feel joy. And so I always like to ask guests how you are cultivating joy in your life now. What brings you joy now? Because I like to keep the conversation going about finding joy in our day-to-day. My goodness, that's an easy one for me to answer. Because I look at my life now compared to in my 30s, and I just feel happy that I'm not going through everything I, I was going through then. So that's one mm-hmm. of the reasons. Two is my family. I'm so lucky I have a really supportive family. And the family that actually respect my boundaries as well, knowing that I do have chronic illness and that I do need times where I have to rest and no, I can't always be available. My cat, Peaches, who I absolutely love, she's normally sitting on the sofa back there, but she's camera shy today. And <laughs> yeah, holidaying, I love traveling. So a lot of my focus and my child-free life was going to be about holidays until Corona kicked in. Mm. But that's something I still have to look forward to. And even like simple things like waking up, like coming to my living room, being in the space that I really love, that I've created for myself. I'm going into my garden and seeing like my rose bush that's flourishing. Yeah, just like really small things, having my five nephews who I love really dearly, but I can give them back at the end of the day. <laughs> that's all, yeah, really important yeah. to me. And my faith as well, because as a Muslim woman, my faith has helped me immensely. And also looking up to a lot of highly revered Muslim women in my faith who never actually had children. Uh, there are mm-hmm. many women in our faith who never had children and men. Yep. And their life was no less than a person who did have a child. And they achieved some great things and have some great legacies without having children. Mm-hmm. So it was actually lots of things that make me happy and keep me grounded. And, and one of my things, which might sound quite cheesy, but this is true for me. And my daily affirmation is what makes you happy today? And like I said, it can even be the little mm. thing like today it's sunny. And I'll try yeah. and focus on these small things that really genuinely make me grateful. Yeah, that's wonderful. I like, where are you going to travel first? <laughs> that's such a hard question. I think it's going to have to be Jordan. Jordan, I really want to go to Petra. 
And it's funny, actually, because mm-hmm. last year for my 40th, because it was the first year, you know, last year that I hadn't had any treatment whatsoever for fertility or indo. Mm-hmm. We actually planned a really big birthday and I was going to do like Croatia, Slovenia and Montenegro. And then COVID kicked in, but it's fine. I'll save that for another time. But yeah, Jordan, I would just love to go there. That would be amazing. Thank you so much for being here, for sharing your story. I know that this is so inspirational for so many women that are listening and you're helping so many on social media and with your coaching. And I know that it's not easy being out there to share your story and having to tell things over. It's still difficult for you. So I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks so much. And thank you for having me here and sharing my story and my husband's. And sometimes child is not by choice. Women are erased from the infertility narrative. And I think it's really important to speak about the fact that not all of us will end up with um, a baby of the infertility and that you can have a happy life, whether you're a mother or not. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you for listening today. Episodes of Fertility Journeys drop every week. Follow wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. Next time on the Fertility Journeys podcast. I love to educate people about toxins and where they can learn more about their personal exposure. And today I have Dr. Jenna Hua, who's going to tell us all about how to get tested and more about her company. One of the things I think is difficult is trying to make all of these changes. Don't get overwhelmed because we don't want to create more stress for ourselves. So how do you even start? Depending on where your exposures are coming from, if you take a simple exposure survey that we provide, you can already identify how many times are you eating out. If you're eating out three times a week or more, maybe trying to cut down once, right? Like uh, eating out two times a week or eating out just one time a week. That's a good way to start. If you're using a lot of personal care product, maybe swapping out one or two. We actually get a lot of visitors on our website looking at our approved product to making sure it's free of these toxic chemicals. The shampoo page is one of the most visited page because I think if people use these products day in and day out, maybe that would be a first step to swap. You don't have to swap out everything. Just do one thing at a time and then slowly swapping out the rest. And also you don't need to do a complete kitchen makeover. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.